Welcome back to the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast. Today, we are joined by Alistair Brogan and Ryan Negley from Boulder Spirits out of Boulder, Colorado. Um, so this is another distillery that I've had the opportunity to talk to uh, coming out of Colorado. I'm becoming more and more, I guess, intrigued by the scene of Colorado distilleries. Uh, there's a lot of really good whiskey coming out of Colorado right now. Um, I've had Breckenridge and Bear Creek, uh, both have come on, um, Boulder, they've been awesome. Um, and it's another whiskey coming out of Colorado that I'm just really, really excited about. Um, I'm really hoping to try their peated whiskey, but the one that I've got was the, uh, their straight bourbon whiskey. I uh, had an opportunity to talk with Alistair and Ryan Negley um, about their their whiskey and what they're making and just the kind of the process that they're going through and the influence that you know Alistair had in his uh, his roots coming from Scotland and um, they're making really good whiskey. So I'm hoping to be able to find some bottles out here in Arizona because I'm really digging this stuff. Um, but I think this was a good episode. We're about, we talked for a while. It's like an hour and a half. Um, but we had such a good conversation. Um, these guys are so knowledgeable about just whiskey in general. Plus, um, they're passionate about making good whiskey. It's like all these people I talk to that are so into making good whiskey. Um, and obviously Boulder Spirits is no exception to that, uh, that trend that's coming about out of Colorado, especially. So, um, if you're in Colorado or an area that you can get Boulder Spirits, I would definitely suggest trying to get your hands on a bottle. Um, it's very reasonably priced. It's very good. They have for a wide variety of whiskeys. So uh, I think you should check them out. I really like them. Check them out on social media. They're very, uh, they're very active on social media. They do a really nice job. And I would just, uh, yeah, suggest trying out some Boulder Spirits. So uh, I'll leave some links below in the description so you can check them out. Uh, get to them a little bit easier. Check out some of our sponsors, friends, uh, some links to help out the channel, walk-offs and whiskey, uh, Manscaped, uh, Amazon store, all of the fun things, bottomless coffee. So check those out, check out Boulder Spirits uh, and enjoy this episode with Ryan and Alistair. All right, um, here with Alistair Brogan and Ryan Negley from Boulder Spirits. Guys, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to be here. Um, so if you guys wouldn't mind, maybe tell me, tell me a little bit about yourselves, um, how you got into whiskey, how, how, uh, yeah, how do you guys find yourselves here where you are right now? Okay. So, well, I'd step back. Well, I'm obviously not from the US. I'm from a little country called Scotland. And I moved over here eight years ago now with my American wife, who was laterally in Florida. We met in Florida, went back to Scotland, and then we came back to the US eight years ago. And we made the decision that what I wanted to do was try and make uh, as good an American single malt whiskey as I could. And with that, I brought a uh, traditional Scottish copper pot still from the famed 
precise of rockets. And it's a still that's specifically designed for malted barley and really over the world, any single malt whiskies that are made 100% malted barley. So I started, I joined a, a distillery here, brought my still in, started producing whiskey about six years ago. And now our whiskies are both, you know, mature, fantastic. We do a line of seven whiskies. And really my ambition was American single malt whiskey. We also do within that range of seven uh, whiskies, we do three of those are bourbons. So we do a very different type of bourbon, uh, which we can go into a little bit later. But uh, that's, that's my background. Uh, before that, I was in the military. Uh, after that, I was in a, a business for 15 years uh, before I came over here to the U.S. when I was in my, my early 40s. I was, uh, I was before Ryan goes, I was trying to look up a little bit of information. Now, uh, Alistair, are, are there any TV shows by chance that you've uh, ever been on that you would uh, care to talk about? Oh. Gee, thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, I had, I got, I got to ask. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, well, I was when I was, I think I was about 32 years old. Yeah, I must have been about 32, 33 uh, at the time. And I, I did uh, the British Survivor, which I think is still going on American TV. But we had, it was actually a, an originally a British format. Hmm. Um, and I did the second season. And then they cancelled it after the second season because we were, as a group, we were far too boring. We didn't, no controversy. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, they, uh, we went out to Panama, kept our mouth shut, didn't want to make fools of ourselves, and it was it was a great experience and great fun. That's great, uh, Brian. How about yourself? Tell me a little bit about you. Um, uh, quick, uh, can you can hear me right now. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <clears throat> um, I come in it from from the on premise trade, so I came as a bartender. Uh, I was, uh, you know, the, the cocktail world was, was quickly shaping, you know, itself into where it is now, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And coincidentally, at the same time, so was so were craft spirits. And mm -hmm. so <clears throat> I come in it from the bartender's perspective, but also uh, from the craft spirits world. So I've had a, I've had a chance to, to work with three craft distilleries um, over the course of the last 10 years. Um, so I've kind of really found that that niche. But you know, coming like I said, just coming from the from the bartending world, um, I did was a founding member of the Denver Whiskey Club, and we were in it from the about we're eleven years old now. Um, but it was always about education. Um, never really had any uh, any inklings of you know single barrel purchases and, and doing any of that kind of stuff. It was just about learning about brands and learning about about distilleries and all that kind of stuff. So how did um, so how did Boulder Spirits come about? How do you uh, how do you, Alistair? You mentioned you moved here and you got it going. Like how do you decide to make that jump into starting your own brand? Well, I think it was it was meant to be started as a hobby. To to be honest, Tony, it was really going to be a hobby. And mm -hmm. when I came across, I bought a still, which was a pretty big still. And once we started, uh, once we joined, uh, really a gin company, we joined originally. Uh, we brought the still in and started making our whiskeys. It just got it just got bigger and bigger. And found myself having to do uh, work full time here, 
and you know it's we wanted to produce whiskey so we produced we produced quite a lot of whiskey here and we've got a lot of whiskey in barrels but for me it was always going to be a hobby and i had some great friends who were master distillers back in scotland and they really really assisted me in really sort of fine-tuning what i was trying to do now we're not making uh scotch we're not making even a a single malt whiskey we're making a single malt whiskey that's that is uniquely American, but it's also uniquely Boulder because of a lot of the attributes Boulder has or Colorado has, as in the climate, as in the spectacular water that we have here. So Boulder is about, our distillery is really about uh, place um, and, produ- and, and process. Mm. So we've got the processes of for single malt whiskey and the place is very, very important uh, to us because of that water because of that climate. And, and you guys are making your own whiskey, correct? Yeah, we make it from grain to glass, as they say. Okay. So there isn't, as you know, there's not many ingredients in whiskey. Really, mm-hmm. there is only water, yeast, uh, malted barley. And I would even put the, the barrel, because it goes into new oak barrels in the U.S., as opposed to ex-bourbon barrels in the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, there's only really four ingredients to, to single malt whiskey. And what's spectacular is every single malt whiskey is distinctly different, even although that's all that's in the, the, the ingredients. And, and why, why Boulder? I'm just curious out of the, uh, it's a, I, I love Boulder. I think it's a beautiful place, but I'm just curious what led you to, to Boulder specifically. Uh, and I've, I've heard a lot about the water in Colorado, how it's unique in terms of, you know, comparing, comparing to other places throughout the country. But uh, why specifically Boulder? I think it was, it was more, uh, my wife and I looked at where we didn't want to live in America. So uh, we didn't want to live in, we didn't want to live in the crowded coasts or there were the tornadoes or the hurricanes, or we didn't want to be in a, a climate that was too cold or, too hot and sweaty so we decided in boulder because of the skiing because of mountains and we 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 visited here nine just on nine years ago and we just fell in love with the place it was just a fantastic location for a distillery but also a fantastic location to bring up a family so i've got two boys one at 10 and one at 12 so they've been here now for that eight nine years and it really is a great place to to bring a family up uh, but we got, we got here in 2012. So now it's, it's, it's a different boulder than even that those nine years ago. Sure. Now, Ryan, can you talk a little bit about your role right now with Boulder Spirits? <clears throat> yeah. So I'm, we're, we're a very small team. Currently, um, our company basically consists of, of six folks. Um, Alistair's one of them. You know, he is an actual, you know, uh, owner operator. So he's, He's got a full day, pretty much seven days a week, you know, as a small business owner, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, we've got our, our, our production manager and then our, our head distiller, our head distiller, our only distiller. Uh, <clears throat> and then we've got, you know, our, our bookkeeper accountant kind of catch all for, for all office and everything. And then, uh, then we've got myself and we just hired another sales rep for in-state here in Colorado. So we're, we're really a, a baby company. Um, so I, my job with the company is, is kind of everything forward facing, um, you know, kind of it's almost old school in the, in the term sales and marketing back when it was, you know, one thing and before they were so divided, but I, you know, all of the sales and all of the marketing and, 
you know, it's again, we, we, as a company, we all wear all of the hats, you know, that mm-hmm. old adage, uh, but really anything, anything forward facing and <clears throat> anybody that wants to hear us talk about whiskey, chances are I'm the guy that's talking about our whiskey. That's uh, I, there's, there's probably worse ways you can spend your day than talking about whiskey. I mean, yeah, no, I, I wake up and you know, uh, I'm not religious, but I am like, I'm very grateful. You know? sure. <laughs> Especially over this last year. Remember I come from, from behind the bar and yeah, that entire chunk of my life, just, you know, all of my friends that are still in it, uh, they, they, you know, I, I was, I'm, I'm only a few years out from, you know, being just completely decimated from a, from an entire industry. So sure. even though we're on a, we're on a fringe edge of, of that industry, it's still, you know, very impactful on, on us. And on a personal note, it was, yeah, it was, it was tough to see all that happen, but very grateful to, to be where I'm at now. And especially again, yeah. yeah, part of my job title is talking about whiskey. So I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. I can imagine. Now, how did you personally, how did you get into whiskey? What was your, uh, like I guess introduction into it or, or how did you become more interested in it at a, at a deeper level? Yeah. You know, I was, you know, coming out of, out of, out of bartending when bartending was just more about the neighborhood bar and it was, you know, beers and shots and mm-hmm. simple whiskey sodas, whiskey gingers, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, <clears throat> and it was really back in the nineties, there weren't that many brands, especially that many brands putting marketing behind their stuff. And for me, and I tell everybody this too. I tell everybody this in the whiskey aisle. It's funny. Um, when Four Roses, uh, when Kieran acquired Four Roses and a few years later, <clears throat> you know, the, under the guidance of Jimmy Rutledge, they put out um, an extended line, you know, and kind of had a rebrand on Four Roses and, and launched the small batch and the single barrel series. Uh, that was kind of it for me. That really kind of turned my head on what, what bourbon was. And it wasn't just, you know, the four or five labels that we're all used to, but you know, there was really a bigger world to it. <clears throat> and it wasn't just about price, you know, anymore. Mm-hmm. Like we were just so used to bourbons. It was all 16 bucks, you know, this is yeah. kind of how much it all was. Um, and then of course I, I'd started to learn a little bit more about the, you know, the beam extended line of, you know, spirits with bookers and bakers and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, back then Blanton's and, and all that kind of stuff was sitting dusty on shelves. So mm-hmm. I was, I was lucky to be, you know, one of the first, bartenders in in denver you know kind of actively seeking out kind of these kind of whiskeys for the back bar so uh, that's kind of my realm into the into the whiskey nerdum and alistair how about yourself were you a uh, were you a bourbon fan uh did you did you stick strictly with scotch or what was your your background with whiskey well i think in scotland in the uk as a whole we don't drink much bourbon we don't drink much american whiskeys to be honest uh, yeah. Maybe some Jack Daniels, but that, that's about it. So, you know, with 130 active distilleries in Scotland, you know, they export one and a half billion bottles of scotch around the world. We've got it in plentiful supply. So, you know, my, my, as I grew up in Scotland and then latterly England, you know, there was always whiskey on tap everywhere you went. Mm-hmm. And the Scots are big single malt whiskey drinkers and Europeans are big single malt whiskey drinkers. So, I, I grew up with the, the, you know, the cheap blends, the famous grouse, the, uh, some of the, the, the other cheaper ones, and then moving into, as most whiskey people do, as well as, as, as they start earning, uh, you know, money uh, into the, the Glen Parkless, the Glen Morangi, the Islies, and really 
a lot of Scots spread their taste around a lot of whiskies. Um, mm. Yeah, that's how really I I got into it. Now it's a whole new realm looking at bourbons and uh, uh, you know uh, rye, wheats. Very very different to me. So I've been here eight years and I'm getting into them more and more. Uh, our bourbon is very very different, as we'll talk about a little later. Mm. Our bourbon is very different. It's a little bit of a nod to um, to, to Scotland. Uh, in the glass, but we can, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, I definitely, I was curious about that peated, uh, you just have a peated one. I, I had to imagine there was a little bit of uh, Scottish influence involved in that one. Oh, I, I, absolutely. We could, we could not do a peated uh, single malt whiskey. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's proved very popular. Again, we do, we do things slightly different. It's a, it's a very low uh, PPM count. Uh, it's very approachable. We do a couple of things different in our distillation with our, our cuts that are not done in Scotland, uh, which really does make a bit of a difference. And I think a lot, we've had a lot of people who absolutely hate peat uh, have come into our distillery and loved it, and vice versa. We've had these peat heads coming in, and they've enjoyed the subtlety of that, that whiskey. Because in the U.S., it really is... With what's on the market, it's, it's really sort of all or nothing here. It's either no peat or a hell of a lot of peat. And I think that puts a lot of people off the, the, the flavors of peat. It's just it's overpowering to somebody uh, that tastes it for the first time. Sure. I, I personally, I hadn't got into scotch. I just never, I, I, not that I disliked it, I just never got into it. Um, so I recently got a, an art bag, a fairly young art bag that was pretty peaty. And I really enjoyed that. And I got a, uh, a peated Irish whiskey from Teeling and I really like it. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that peat now. I'm kind of, uh, want to dive into that a little bit more. And I'm afraid of the rabbit hole. I could definitely go down with those, those <laughs> some of those Isla scotches. Oh, big time. And then, and, and, yeah, and to, to kind of Al's point about how, uh, you know, we, we touch on in the United States market, it's peat or no peat and kind of mm-hmm. a deal. And, and we're not very educated as a mass consumer on the intricacies of single malt whiskey. And so <clears throat> this uh, rabbit hole is deep because when you start learning that Highlands whiskeys have, you know, peated flavors about them and you go to Lowland whiskeys and there are certain distilleries that are like, oh no, we're going to be putting a little bit of peat into this build of our whiskey because it provides such an, it's such a, an absolute, I mean, it's, it's, it's everything about Scotland is, are those coasts for, for, you know, the, 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 the outside consumer really is. And that's, it's the, that grand romanticism about it, but there, there's such a, we'd love to be able to introduce our peat at a way that's um, more reflective of the nuances that peat can create mm-hmm. versus just saying, this is peated, this is smoke. And, that's all that we care about because it's not all we care about. Sure. Yeah. I think it's a, a nice, uh, nice addition to a, a good whiskey and doesn't have to be the overwhelming, um, you know, flavor profile that, that leads that whole, that whole drink off. But I think it's a nice, like that art bag I got, it's really nice. And so I have to imagine like a, a, a American whiskey with some peat. It's got to be fairly interesting. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's imagine that, but remember American whiskeys, we just have so much of a richer mouthfeel and, and body. Mm-hmm. And so apply that 
you know, with this idea of Pete and we'll get you, we'll get you a sample out there soon. We'll, we'll have yeah. a little July uh, uh, podcast about it. Okay. I'm into, I'm, I'm into that idea. <laughs> so how, how did you, okay. So you, you're in Boulder now, Alistair, you're, you're ready to go. You've got this idea. I mean, I'm, I'm imagine it starts with permitting and, you know, all the red tape that you've got to go through to, you know, get licensing to start a distillery and all that. Once you've gone through that process, how do you, how do you start? You know, you've decided you're going to do this. You're going through the process. Like now what? <laughs> well, I really just wanted to make single malt whiskey. That's all I really wanted to make, but I sort of reality struck and uh, I had a great distiller here, Ted, who uh, was dist- uh, who was a distiller for the gins. And we made the decision that we were then going to add our bourbons at the same time. And it was a great decision to make, but we wanted to do something different with the bourbon. So we, we have a high multi-barley content in our bourbons. Uh, so it really is a bit of a lean to that, that almost that um, flavors that you have in a, a single malt, which is that maltiness, that creaminess that you get in a single malt. So yeah, I mean, we, the permitting was, 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 was not that hard because we already, I came into an established business. Mm-hmm. So we were able to start making a single malt very quickly. So we waited, we waited, we sold our gin, we sold our vodka, we sold our liqueurs. And then after two years, when it became a straight whiskey, uh, new old barrels, it's number three char we used, uh, we brought it out and it wasn't ready. And you know, straight whiskey, two years, even in the climate we have in Colorado, it really powers that filtration through uh, the char, because of the massive swings in temperature in Colorado, there's massive swings in pressure. So it breathes in and out that, that char and filtrates very quickly. Even at that, we found after two years, it, it wasn't there yet. So we left it. We left it just short of three years before we felt that it was ready to come out. Hmm. That's a long time. Just to give a quick example, you know, for, for best calculations, we are losing about, after the, uh, the initial fill of the barrel, of about 10 to 15 liters gets sucked into the wood. Hmm. We are losing about 4 to 5%, 4% to evaporation each year. That's a lot of evaporation and to the angel share. Hmm. And, you know, you go to Scotland where it's cold, cold, and cold. Uh, you have no, none of these swings, and they're losing probably around about a third of that. So... You know, there really is, it just shows there's a lot of um, action, reaction happening in that filtration, in that wood, because of where we're located. So different if we were in the Pacific Northwest, different if we were where you are, different if you were in Kentucky. And this is why we're going to get really regionalized whiskeys throughout the U.S. And I think it's going to become, how can I say, more obvious within single malt whiskey because of the, the nuances of uh, aging and, um, and, and depth and complexity of whiskey allows those different locations to have a real impact on, mm. on the whiskies. You know, I've had single malts from the Northwest, Northeast, uh, Kentucky, and each and every one of us is significantly different. D- does the lack of humidity in your area, does that play a role? Um, in the the aging process, yes. I mean, lack of humidity, uh, hot summers, 
swings in temperature uh, has huge impacts on that, mm. um, as does you know where you keep your lesser lesser influence of where you keep your barrels uh, in the, the the rack house. But yeah, it does make a big difference, and it's how big a difference. Well, when I compare it to, as I said, to the Pacific Northwest, uh, whiskies, huge difference. When I compare it to Kentucky single malt, well, more Texan single malt whiskies, huge difference. Uh, it's also very important that we, you know, the water makes a huge difference. We use El Dorado water, which is a local uh, well about six miles south of here. And they, award-winning water, comes from a well. You know, the water table uh, the water table is still, you know, the snow melt off the Rocky Mountains, so that makes a big, a big difference as well. Can you can you define? Because I know I've been asked this, and I hate to say it, but I don't have a good explanation specifically. What is a, or how would you define specifically a single malt whiskey? <clears throat> well, I mean, there's there that's a big that's a big question because there's single malt whiskey, which it would. Traditionally, we, you know, we all attribute Scotland to, so Scotch single malt whiskey, which has its own rules. But um, in our case, we're American single malt whiskey. And so within the United States, um, it's really nothing more than a gentleman's handshake agreement as to what that means. Mm. Uh, within the rules that we all uh, submit our recipes of our whiskeys to, the TTB, the Tax and Trade Bureau, um, we have a set of guidelines, uh, standards of identity that define what bourbon is, define what rye whiskey is, define what malt whiskey is. But what we don't have is a definitive standard of identity of what American single malt whiskey is. Mm. Now, <clears throat> we actually do have a lobby and we've got our, our set of rules that we'd like to see adhered to, literally waiting for somebody in the Treasury Department to sign off on. But in the meantime, and we do adhere to all of those rules, it's, <clears throat> it's going to be 100% malted barley, of course, because it's malt whiskey and single malt doesn't refer to the single and most single malt refers to a single distillery. So that's also important. So if you have single malt in your whiskey labeling United States, um, that's not a sourced product. There's no, there, the idea is that you couldn't have, you can't, you're not allowed to put single malt, but it's like putting bonded, right? You could put bonded mm, on your sure. bourbon if you don't, um, if you, if you do source it. So single malt within and of itself would mean, uh, both of those things, the, the barley, as well as the, as well as the, uh, distillation by the own distillery um, barrels that's kind of a contentious topic within the community of american single malt producers for us we want to follow the rules of straight whiskey so it's really american whiskey um, and that means freshly charred virgin american oak barrels and for us it's a 53 gallon level i guess you can see them behind now but 53 gallon level three char um, on our barrels uh, from kelvin cooperage um, so we are we're adhering certainly more to the american aging aspect because for us, that's what we're doing is we're making an American whiskey. Um, it is a single malt whiskey made by a, a fellow from Scotland, um, but this is an American whiskey. I, I really like, and again, I know this is probably not for, you know, most people that are going to um, find it to be a big thing. I love the fact that you've got on this, that it's a number three char, because I think that people, I, I really do. Like, I think that people ask that, like they want, because I know that that plays a role in what flavors you're getting and the, I think that's a great added thing to put on your bottling. We had. Oh, sorry. That's all right. That's all right. I'm, I'm shocked. Mine's sleeping right now. So we're good. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, we had, and when, when it was time for label design um, for this uh, update on our packaging, we wanted to be as absolutely detailed and forthright uh, with our mm -hmm. messaging as possible. Um, transparency is a, is a huge part of, of uh, part of telling our brand and our brand story. Um, and for us, the label, you know, has to represent just that, which uh, tell everything about the, about, about, it. you know, it's, uh, it says the recipe, you know, on the label, it's got yeah. our exact coordinates of where it's aged. You know, it's got, it says 53 gallon barrels on it. It's a level three char. So if you're an in the know whiskey consumer, you can already have an idea of what's going on in this bottle. And mm -hmm. it's not just the story on the back label, but we're telling you, all the components of, of the whiskey itself. Yeah. I think that makes it so, uh, we so, want oh, it sorry. to be. No, go ahead. Go no, ahead. No, we will uh, just on, 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 we really want to be incredibly transparent in what we do and how we do it. So it's about, you know, the labels about the process. It's, it's about the location because the location is as important as the process. So, you know, it's, that's the actual copper pot still, 100% malted barley. That's the flat irons out in Boulder. We wanted to do that because for me, I find it quite difficult looking at the whiskey shelves in the US. Mm -hmm. You can have two rye whiskeys and one rye whiskey could be 51% rye and 49% corn. Mm -hmm. Another rye whiskey could be 99% rye and 1% wheat. So how is the consumer is really going to understand what flavors are going to get out of those two rye whiskeys? They'll be significantly different. And I think a lot of consumers think, well, I don't like rye whiskey. Well, you drank a rye that's got a mash bill completely different from anybody else. Sure. So understanding what the mash bill is, and here's the thing, you can't copy. It's almost impossible to, to copy. The Scots have tried it, you know, trying to copy other people's whiskey, even though they're all getting their barley and their, their, their water source all the same places. But it's about uh, the location. It's about uh, a big degree is it's about the shape of the still. And our still was specifically designed to give a little heavier whiskey, mm. a heavier, a lot of heavier particles and flavors were able to get over the linear arm of our still. So well, actually, we were able to put that in the new old barrel. Because I'm going to interrupt you real quick, Al. If you, Tony, if you grab your bottle, huh? can you actually see on the label? Yeah, so I saw That it. is I'm our still. Like that, that really is our still. Yeah. And that lin arm, as we're talking about, the arm that, that shoots off the top of the still, um, a lighter whiskey would be made with a lin arm that comes up. Mm -hmm. Our lin arm goes down. And so what we're trying to do is, is capture um, a heavier, richer whiskey because, as Al was alluding to, we are aging in freshly charred oak. So we've got a lot of filtration um, at our backs to help uh, filter out those heavier congeners. Sorry, so that that angle of the arm is really what that, that plays a significant role in it. Right. Hmm. Huge. Because, you know, if you look at the, you know, the, if you look at the 130 distilleries in Scotland, a lot of them are using, you know, they're across the road from each other. Some of them uh, using the same water owned by the same distillery, uh, distill, distillery company, uh, same yeast. Everything is the same. They might even be getting their barrels uh, from the same supplier of Kentucky. But the biggest difference is the shape of that still. That still can be small, fat, double bubble, as Ryan said, uh, lin arm pointing up, pointing down, uh, all shapes and sizes. And um, it, it makes a colossal difference. And 
this is the, the, the flexibility we had from day one, is designing our own still for malted barley going into a new old barrel. And we spent a lot of time and effort really sort of understanding. And when I did it, uh, there hadn't been many stills exported uh, out into the US from uh, a Scottish copper works. I mean, so in, I mean, in theory, you could have one mash bill and change your char level and the angle of the arm on the still and come out with multiple different whiskeys. Yeah, and here's here's a, an interesting thought. I mean, to be honest, you could literally do exactly that and have a a, a lin arm that can actually move in production. Wow! And then you could have different whiskeys, literally different whiskeys coming off. And it would be a great experiment to have. But mm. most of the traditional Scottish distilleries, they have had the same still for uh, a three, 250 years. Mm. They've had the same still. So they've ended up making the same still when they get it renewed. These stills will last 100 years. They get, when they get them renewed, Macallans, for example, just as I ordered my still, ordered, I think it was about 26 stills. Mm. And the requirement from the manufacturer was really, we want them identical in every way. You can't change in the, in old, the old stories of if there's a dent in it, put a dent in it as well, because it makes that much of a difference in that shape of the still. So McAllen wow. ordered the stills that ensured that it was very identical to the ones that they had 50, 60 years ago. Wow. And, and uh, you know, we're one of very few pot distilled bourbons in the United States. You know, there's there's only a handful of obviously the big one being Woodford and their and their setups that they've got going on. And Willa, of course, has their their pot still. And the craft community has a lot of pot column combos, mm -hmm. um, but not truly pot distilled. Um, and so we're making a truly pot distilled bourbon. And and part of that, of course, is our mash bill being such a high malted barley content. Um but really what we're allowed, what we're able to do is get a different style of uh, a cook on this, on this bourbon recipe than we're going to see from the 98% other uh, column distilled bourbons that we're going to see um, out there. So we really truly do have um, a unique touch uh, kind of from the get go. Of course, our mash bill is fun and unique, but anybody can use that mash bill, right? Um, our yeast is more designed towards towards the malted barley. So that's another kind of check on what's going to make ours taste quite a bit different. Um, you know, we're pot distilled on a still that's designed for malted barley. So the linarm's pointing down. So there's four and five, um, you know, we, the, they go on and on, but really the aging aspect and <clears throat> you could take, you know, we, we could cook anybody's exact recipe on their exact setup. Age it in Colorado. It's going to taste different. And, and you mentioned like your, um, the mash bill is the Colorado the one that was fifty one percent corn. Yeah, so we have, we have one mash bill of bourbon. Oh, it's, so saying the same for everything. Yeah, so it's so one mash bill of bourbon, uh, one you know obviously one hundred percent malted barley for the single malt, and then our peated malt that's uh, as well. So not necessarily three recipes, but three styles. Mm -hmm. But yeah, one bourbon recipe, fifty one corn, forty four percent malted barley, five percent rye. So it's just I mean you went legal limit of bourbon and went right above it and said yeah. hey let's let's malt this thing. I mean, the, the, the rules are, yeah. are left open there for creativity. And so yeah. Alistair got real creative. Yeah. Why not? I mean, I think that's really cool. That's so, it's so different than, um, cause it, it, the, I feel like the space is very, we'll say crowded. 
there's a lot of bourbons out there. So it's like, what is the, what's different? You know, what is happening? What's different? You know, right. why, why are you, why am I going to buy a bottle of Boulder spirits versus somebody else, even in Colorado with their, their, that the distillery scene in Colorado seems to be blowing up. So why am I going to go Boulder spirits? Well, it's different. It's a different, it's a different whiskey. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really cool. Yeah. I think there's a and all uh, the whiskeys in, in Colorado are significant. That okay, so there, yeah, there's four. Yeah. There's there's even four or five single malt whiskeys in Colorado. Mm. Now, are you guys are you getting grains? Um, everything that you're getting are they are they fairly local to you guys? No, no, not for especially not for our, our single malt. Um, we do import our grain from the UK for the, okay. it's hundred percent from the UK. Um, we do it for a couple of reasons. Um, <clears throat> one, uh, the Scotch industry has been around for a very, very, very long time. Mm-hmm. That means their base product of malted barley has been around for a very, very long time. So, uh, the science behind the malted barley coming out of the UK is just producing, uh, uh more spirit per pound. Um, and it's just a really beautiful, beautiful whiskey spirit. Mm-hmm. Whereas most of the malted barley available in the United States is really for beer production. Um, mm-hmm. Even though it's the same malting style and same malting uh, houses that are making uh, the beer and the spirits, which isn't all that uncommon, but it's more of a 95% beer to 5% spirits. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's, it's not so specialized in, in malting for the distilling industry. Um, and so we're just getting less yield, great flavor. But, um, when we had a choice to make a really great whiskey that can only cost 50 or 60 or $70 on the shelf versus making a great single malt whiskey that would end up being 70, 80, 90, hundred dollars on the shelf. Um, you know, we had to go with, with tried and true. And the fact of the matter is, you know, we share our grain source with some of the greatest malt whiskey in the world. So, sure. um, it's no, no fact that we hide behind, but we do have probably 40, maybe 50 barrels of local grain whiskey um, aging on our premise uh, mm. project with a local malt and, and farm uh, that's literally just minutes up the road. Mm. Um, that's a really fun project. Um, but our single malt whiskey specifically uh, is uh, made with the imported malt barley. Not saying that there's not, again, a future for uh, that window to be open. It, it's, it was difficult. It was difficult to source anything that wasn't made for beer, and it was the same as the yeast. A lot of the yeasts here. We were the first importers into the U.S. of uh, A.B. Mori yeast, so it's a distiller's yeast. So we're using distiller's malted barley, a distiller's yeast. Therefore, we get a distiller's mash. There's we had we've had a few people in here that you know you know great minds regarding whiskey, and there there's a distinct flavor difference between a, a beer mash and a distiller's mash. And as one, cha- one, one expert said to, to us the other day, they said, yeah, I mean, a beer mash is, is good, but it's distinctly Colorado beer mash because of the grains from Colorado. So if you went up to Montana, Wyoming, or any of these states, they're going to have a different uh, flavor within their, their uh, malted barley because nobody really uses malted barley in the whiskey. And that's why, you know, we wanted to do the, the, the bourbon with a high malted barley. So when we looked around, we couldn't find any. And there is a little bit of uh, American barley tends to be heavily genetically modified. 
whereas mm. European barley, and that that's a little added advantage. Yeah, I have to imagine trying to find a uh, American-made non-GMO distillers specific grain is going to be a little bit challenging. I mean, yeah, and we'll, I'm sure someday we'll find it. And four or five years later, it'll be a hundred dollar bottle of whiskey on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah you're paying I hope for it. we do. I, I, I really do want to, you know, get to the point where we can get that experimental with it. I would, I mean, we, of course, we, we're trying to take as much data as we possibly can uh, anytime we cook. And especially when we use uh, new sources of malt or, or corn or rye or whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, but for now, uh, you know, we're, we're going to focus on this, on these core line of products. You've got our bourbon, of course. So Mm -hmm. that one recipe right now yields, uh, three labels of bourbon on the, on the Colorado market and New Mexico market and a few other markets. And then that basically one recipe of malt that we have at the distillery, I think six labels of our single malt available, but in Colorado, four or five are distributed. Hmm. So I'm curious about, so for example, you've do, you mentioned some of your other bottles. You've got some. You've got a couple of finishes, right? You've got a, a port and a sherry, and then you've got. Is that right? Yeah, we've got um, a port. Or excuse me, a sherry cask finished bourbon uh, mm-hmm. that was launched at the end of 2020. Uh, we've got a uh, sherry uh, Oloroso sherry finished single malt that's a distillery only release. We've got a, uh, a Ruby port finished single malt that's out in the market. And then of course we've got in barrel, right? We actually just got some new Oloroso barrels, I think, Al, is that what it is? Yep, just wait for me. Yeah, so we've got, yeah, so we're, we've, we've got both bourbon and malt going into some stuff. And, you know, as, as we're growing, I'm, one of my goals is to take some of these older fruit barrels that we've already used uh, sorry, I call them fruit barrels, fruitier barrels, um, mm. and get some peated malt in there. You know, that's, that's mm. kind of, I, I really want to, I want to taste that. A, a peated malt with a, uh, with one of those fruitier type barrels. I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll meet you, I'll meet you in Boulder for that one, by the way. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks like, I mean, you guys are offering a lot of different, a lot of different types of, of bottles. I mean, what's your, like, what's your yield like, you know, coming out in terms of, you know, if you're doing a single malt, you know, how much of that is going directly to your, just your straight bourbon versus how much of that is being put into something else that's going to be finished in a, in a secondary barrel? Well, we're, we're quite lucky because we, we've, the sweet spot for us is once we take our, whether it be single malt whiskey or bourbon already matured into a finishing barrel, we're about six to eight, to eight months so that's easier to manage as far as uh, sales and projections. But we've got a lot in our bur- uh, uh, a lot of bourbon and a lot of single malt whiskey stored. So that's we, we, that's the, the, the longest time that we need for the maturation. So as we deplete, we then buy more finishing barrels. The only one that we project difficult to project is the the peated because that takes as long as anything else. So. We're balancing up to see how much peat people are interested in, and then we'll have to lay down a little, a few more barrels. Because the older the barrels get with peated single malt whiskey, the PPM starts to, to drop off. So in that new oak especially. So it gets a bit lighter and lighter as the years uh, progress. And our oldest uh, uh, finished, sorry, our oldest peat is about five years now. Hmm. How, 
in terms of the, maybe not necessarily just the PPM, but like, how is, where do you put the a level of peat, uh, like in comparison to, you know, like an Isla scotch? Oh, uh, I mean, obviously uh, not, I'm not, not expecting it to be all the way up there, but. No, I mean, I mean, uh, like a Latroig would be 40 to 50 phenols per mil. Ours is probably down at, at a guess because it really is a bit of a guess, 10 to 15. So we're way down. And most, uh, you know, Laphroaig is, you know, a million cases a year in the US. Sure. And people love Laphroaig, but that is a pretty peaty uh, proposition. So if you've tasted that in your 20s, it could put you off peat for the rest of your life. <laughs> and you'll never go, you'll never taste it again. Uh, you know, uh, but whereas ours is down at that 10 or 15. So it's hmm. more approachable. It's a little bit more subtle. Uh, there's an, it's an expression. So you're, you're still getting something. You're getting more than peat. With a Lothroig, it seems to be peat, peat, peat. And a lot That's of people it. love that, i.e. a million cases in the US. <laughs> They're doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, talk, let's... They, don't, they don't see us as competition. Yeah. So I'm curious about, so I... I... And again, I don't know much about like the distillation process of, you know, whether it's gin or vodka, rum, you know, anything else other than, than whiskey, but talk about like that comparison of the art and science of making whiskey in relation to, you know, making a clear spirit. I mean, what is that like? Is it as interesting and as fun to make some of those vodkas or other clear spirits as it is to get into the whiskeys? Sorry, I missed that last bit again. I missed that last bit. Could you ask that question again? Comparing like the uh, the process of making whiskey and bourbon versus like a clear spirit, like a gin or a vodka. I mean, I, I'm curious about how how that process differs and, and your personal enjoyment uh, of making each maybe separately. Well, we do. We do a gin. We do. We actually do a, an incredible barrel-aged gin called uh, Ginsky. Hmm. And we take our Boulder gin and put in a new oak barrel exactly the same way as we do with our, our bourbons or our single malts and let that gin mature over two two years. And then we've actually got a bottled and bond barrel-aged gin. Um, and it comes out of a lot of the flavors you normally expect in a whiskey, but it is gin. But the actual process of making gin is quite quick and easy. Uh, it's literally on demand because there's no real uh, aging process. So we keep a stock, but mm. as stocks deplete, we can make a lot of gin very, very quickly. And it's an easy, easy process. Whereas the whiskey process, you have to be a little bit more detailed regarding uh, cuts, uh, where you do your cuts, being consistent with your cuts. The only thing that really changes in our distillery is temperatures and pressures that can have an impact on how hot the spirit runs off the still so we still have to keep a real eye on how we're distilling and ensuring that the the new make spirit is tastes good you don't have to have that same uh detail when you're doing gins or you're doing a vodka mm -hmm. so if you get that part of it right really you're putting it in the barrel and Yes, there's barrel management, uh, there's quality of barrel, but really you're, you're leaving it up to the gods uh, to mm. see what comes out at the end. And we left it up to the gods when we um, 
first put it in the barrel and just prayed that it would get better and better because you can really only determine it coming into the second year. Towards mm. the end of the second year, you're then beginning to say, hey, this is coming off great. So we've got a process now that we are not changing changing uh, because we've got it, I think we've got it nailed. Um, and yeah, if we do other products, we'll change our process. But I think we've got, for what we are doing, it's now a repeat process with mm. just monitoring. Hmm. It's uh, yeah, not not knowing much about gin. I think it's I think the the uh, process of making whiskey is fascinating, and so it always makes me curious because you see you hear people talk about making whiskey and they're they're so into it, which rightfully so. I think it's really cool. Um, but I just wonder if that process is similar. The enjoyment is necessarily similar in making a vodka or a gin, where like you said, it can be done um, significantly more rapidly. Yeah. And to be, you know, fair and transparent, we, on our vodka, um, we don't, we don't have a, we don't have a column still. Mm. So it's literally, it's, it's impossible for us to, to make vodka. So mm. our base spirit, um, is a, uh, 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 non-GMO, um, 93%, uh, uh, corn spirit. Um, mm. that is the base of our, of our vodka and gin. So, um, because we don't have, that 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 step you know we're not so uh worried about trying to make what kind of grain or what kind of uh specific mash bill of the base spirit um and kudos to all of those distillers out there doing it that way um but we didn't have to think about that so our all of our r&d went into the 11 botanics and the balance of how that was going to be and and how it was going to taste on the final distillation on a pot still and so those those were the big factors and as Al said, um, we've been making gin a long time. I mean, it's 12, 13 years now. Um, it's some of the highest awarded gin from the state of Colorado. And it's been one recipe and the same recipe for a very long time. So um, luckily, yeah, we do have that process down. The, the fun part of it is now going out to the bars and restaurants and sharing that gin with bartenders and saying, man, what can you make with this? You know, yeah. and it's, it's and it kind of paying that forward and watching what create what gets created from that. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I like to see with our gins. Sure. Um, t- talk a little bit more about some of your your different bottles that you're offering, or at least the whiskeys. Um, you know, some of those. I know you've got the Colorado. Um, there's bottled and bond. I was interested in Alistair when you mentioned like a bottled and bond gin. Is that do does a bottled and bond gin go with the same uh, regulations as a bottled and bond bottled and bond bourbon? Yes, and it, it was a little bit of a play on it. The TTV changed the rules, I think it was last May, because any barrel-aged gin has been an oddity. The TTV didn't want you to call it barrel-aged because they didn't really know what that was. It had to be barrel-rested, barrel-matured, all those kind of words. So last May, they made the decision that you could then say it's barrel-aged uh, because it's become incredibly popular, uh, aged gin. And mm-hmm. aged gin can be in rum barrels, in uh, sherry, all sorts of barrels, normally for about six months. Mm-hmm. So we decided, we jumped on it and decided when the TTV changed it. It's a bit of a, a fun thing. We said a bottled and bond barrel aged gin. So we were first in the world to do that. And it was a few barrels that we had at four years old. So it's like a, it's like a whiskey. I mean, the, the biggest difference is a a botanical whiskey 
that has been distilled at 193 rather than the regulation of 160. So you, you've got no flavors of the grains, but you've got all the flavors of the barrel. And that's what's fun about it. So you've got the botanicals, the senchi tea, the star anise, hibiscus, mainly the sort of um, uh, floral and citrus and the, the, um, the coriander. Uh, but it's just a fun drink. You wouldn't put it in a gin and tonic, but you'd put it in a, 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 a Negroni or a, or a mule or something like that. And bartenders absolutely love it. Yeah, and then the, the bottled and bond bourbon, um, it was kind of a no-brainer. You know, a lot of small distilleries struggle to get to the point where they're able to release four-year-old, you know, bourbons. They've got to sell it all at two and three years old, and everyone's trying to trying to figure out how to catch up. And for us, because of, you know, how we laid down a lot of whiskey early, mm-hmm. um, we were we were lucky to, to be able to do that. Um, so we were able to put out a full line of bottled and bond bourbon. Um, but the, the, the fun part about that is because, you know, this, this bourbon is, is we're very, very proud of this bourbon um, that bottled right at just shy of three years old or right at three years old. Um, and our bottled and bond bourbon, of course, has to be four years old. But our first uh, uh, release of our bottled and bond bourbon was actually uh, five summers long. So it kind of had a little bit of a extra extra uh, age time to it, but still a four-year bottle and bond. Um, and it's spectacular in the amount of spirit development that happens uh, with our bottle and bond series. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's been doing very well for us here in the, in the Colorado market. And then bottle and bond, of course, is being such an, an iconic American term, you know, in regards to quality. Um, that's absolutely why we wanted to put it on our American single malt label because um, American single malt is still just such a tiny baby category that we're trying to grow. And uh, we really wanted to put uh, a real sense of Americana on this single malt label to kind of help pull away that word, not Scotch single malt, but single malt can be is the bigger word. You know, mm-hmm. it's above all the other names and we're the American single malt bottle and bond. Uh, I, I mean, that's, I didn't really think about it in those terms because you don't see a lot of, you know, craft distilleries coming out with a bottled and bond because of, I would imagine that exact same thing. Like you can't, you, it's hard to sit on a whiskey for four years yeah. you know, and not, not, and go, okay, we're, we're still waiting. We're going to wait this out guys. <laughs> you know, can't sell bottled yeah, and bond in three and a half years. Yeah. And there are, there are whiskeys even in Colorado that are technically bottled and bond, but they haven't labeled it bottled and bond. So mm-hmm. it might be four years old. We made a decision. It's a little bit of history. Uh, made the decision yeah. and I tell you it's catching on because you know some of the biggest names will remain nameless this uh, you know large whiskey house owned brands here in Colorado are starting to think we should put something that says bottled and bond because it's people are becoming educated on what that is it's a sure. market quality as I said earlier we brought our, we looked at our whiskey after two years our bourbon and it wasn't there yet but we could mm-hmm. have brought it out as a straight whiskey we decided not to, and we left it to that three-year point uh, before it was really ready. So when consumers go in, yes, they're paying a little bit more, but they know they're going to get that quality mm-hmm. or, or the standard that is given to bottled and bond products. Now, when you when you set out, so when you make your you make your spirits, your your whiskey's ready to age. You're you're putting in. You said it's not ready after two years. You know now you've got you've, you've got your straight bourbon. It's ready to roll, but you decide to keep going. Do you go with the with the intent of it being 
um, a bottled and bond that you proof down to what is this 86, 84, um, or, or how does that work? Do you have separate bottles that are, okay, this is our Colorado. That's going to be 84. These are the ones that we know we're setting aside to go four years to become our bottled and bond. Like, how does that process work? Well, it, it, it works in as much as when we start, uh, t- when we start dumping barrels, that's the oldest whiskey. We don't dump it all. Mm-hmm. So it is in the barrel, 62 and a half ABV. So it goes into the barrel anyway, very high. Mm-hmm. So with our standard bourbon, we obviously just cut that down to 42. Uh, and, we, and then when we yield this, the 62 and a half ABV, we just cut that down to 50. So mm-hmm. the decision is, and the trick is that you keep enough uh, uh, older stuff to meet mm-hmm. demand, but then you sit, you're able to sell enough of the younger uh, products. Mm-hmm. So we've got the two. But as we move forward... You know, our bottles and our bottle and bond will be six, seven years old, and our standard uh, straight whiskey uh, will be almost that bottled and bond uh, age. Might not have the proof, but it'll have the age. So the quality is going to increase. And and as as Ryan said, there's not many distilleries that have got the luxury of setting aside those barrels um, and allowing that process to happen. So with our single malt whiskey. We're, we're, we're now on to about five and a half years and it's still tasting, it's still maturing. It's, sorry, it's still developing. Three years it's ready, but it's developing even more. Like Scotch whiskeys, whether you're having a 10-year-old or, or sorry, a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old, you know, it's still developing. Mm-hmm. When that development stops, who knows? Because remember, nobody really in the U.S., has got single malt whiskies that are very, very old. And to be honest, there is a, a danger that once they get to seven, eight, nine years, that that spirit can be overtaken by the barrel. It becomes lots of tannins. It becomes licking leather. It becomes a little bit too much for the consumer. Now, we, we've taken a few, we, the biggest step that we've taken towards that is having that heavier spirit put into through our, our, our still into the barrel. So I think we're going to, the development will carry on a little further than you using maybe a beer mash in, mm-hmm. in it. But um, we'll, we'll wait and see. We're, we're keeping barrels behind every single year to, to keep that, 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 that development. I mean, that, that makes total sense. I mean, you're, I would have to imagine anywhere here that is, you have barrels being aged, you're going to have a bigger fluctuation in weather than you would in Scotland for set, you know, where you can put it in for 18 years in Scotland and you're not going to have the dramatic highs and lows versus most places here, really. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. And that's going to be, and this is, this is the fun part of it is, Hey, let's wait and see what happens. I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to be, um, it's such a slow process that we can keep on, just tasting, seeing how the development is. Uh, and at the moment, we're, we're delighted with the, the development of the, the single malts and, and the bourbons. And the bourbon will develop differently than maybe a 90% corn bourbon because of the amount of malted barley we have. So we've got to be careful. We've just got to keep our eye on that development mm-hmm. uh, through the years. 
I have to imagine that's a fun part of it where you could say, you know what, let's, let's try this. Let's try a number four char and just see how this goes, or let's try, you know, whatever it might be. And like, this might change uh, enough of that profile that it becomes something pretty special. I would imagine. Yeah. The variables are pretty, well, well, yeah. Um, I mean, but just even within the, uh, uh, innovations with barrels that are happening right now, there's, you know, we could, we could in theory, you know, make a few batches of whiskey and fill up 30 barrels and each one of them be hundred percent different of a barrel. Um, that's, like that, that's how many options there are now for like, that's how creative whiskey has gotten to, at, from the production level. And of course yeah. the consumer is starting to see some of that. Um, but really over the next 10 years, there's going to be some really, really nuanced, crazy stuff coming out on the market. Oh, I have to imagine. Um, okay. So we've got the bottled and bond single malt, bottled and bond bourbon, uh, the ports that you had talked about, right? Some of those finished ones. Any other, any other finishings you guys are uh, messing around with? Well, we're actually, um, we did a, a sherry finished single malt whiskey. And that was, we did one barrel of it. Because again, we, we have no idea how it was going to turn out. Mm-hmm. So we put our matured single malt whiskey into a sherry barrel because we also do a sherry bourbon that's on the market. And that turned out, great again it was a bit of an experiment it was three barrels we launched that in the colorado market because it came out well we only did one sherry finished single malt whiskey and it came out spectacular and we only had one barrel so we couldn't exactly put it into distribution so we only sell that from the the distillery it's only a distillery owned but we will start gradually building our inventory on that and launch it into the colorado market first you know, mm. like all craft distilleries, it's about, you know, building that reputation, building your name of quality products so that people, when we do come out with something fun and interesting, we've got, a, you know, a group of enthusiasts that will be knocking on our door and selling it. So we are, we are not being on the market that long. We've only really been on the market for a couple of years. Mm. And already we, we certainly are making inroads for the higher quality single malts and even the bourbons now, which, you know, is so rewarding. And as you're talking about it, you know, more reward, more rewarding than, uh, um, than maybe making gin, making whiskey is what I wanted to do. I believe it. I think it'd be fun. I think there's, there just seems like the, the possibilities are endless in terms of, uh, how, how deep you could get into, you know, tweaking something fairly small and creating something completely different. Can you, can you go through, talk a little bit about the, uh, about this one, about the straight bourbon, um, you know, maybe some tasting notes, maybe some things that if people are trying it out, something to, you know, pay attention to or, yeah, or, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, this bourbon's really fun to talk about because I've, you know, I luckily I've got a, a breadth of knowledge on just the market, you know, I've, Mm-hmm. I've been lucky that I've, you know, had a few hundred bourbons in my, you know, day as opposed <clears throat> to just, you know, being the brand guy that only has had, you know, our bourbon over and over and over yeah. again. Um, Seems fair. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and as far, cause I, I say that because it's, it's fun to compare our whiskeys to others or not necessarily compare, but um, I always think about it when I'm, when I'm standing in the aisle at the, at the store and, 
you know, um, and there's a thousand whiskeys for, for people to choose from. And, and, and I always got to ask what they like. And if somebody's gone that, that softer profile or that weeded bourbon, or, you know, they're in that real makers kind of approachability, that's where mm-hmm. we are. Our overall approachability and softness on the palate, that is an absolute shining aspect of our bourbon. Um, it's, it's, it is 42%. So, you know, not terribly high on the ABV, but um, it is incredibly easy to drink. And from the get go, we've got a few things working on our side. Um, The very first being our mash bill. So even though it's a little bit younger whiskey, um, because it's not all corn distillate, it's not going to have such that hot nose and that kind of intimidating heat that a lot of, you know, higher corn, younger whiskey kind of has. So because it's got so much malted barley, it already comes across softer on the nose. And for me on the palate, oh, go ahead. Does that malted barley almost, you know, like the, um, some of those weeded bourbons that, that seem to, you know, almost smooth out quite a bit on the, on the, um, on the palate. Does that, is that malted barley kind of work the same way on the nose? Exactly. So really in, in whiskey, there's uh, corn and rye or you're a little more assertive or aggressive grains on the palate. Mm and wheat and well when distilled um, correctly wheat and malted barley tend to be a little softer a little easier to drink on the palate and so when you that's why i say this typically with a weeded bourbon you'll you'll find that that same similar uh, consumer um, is that is uh, agreeing with our bourbon <clears throat> but the flavor off the get-go is another attribute of ours that um, is is really sets our sets us apart and really kind of helps uh, let the consumer understand what are, what that recipe means because it's a little more textural on the palate. Um, there's a tiny bit of sweetness up front, but really it's not a ton of sweetness. Like it kind of dissipates pretty quickly. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's, and it moves into this, you know, wonderful granular texture. Um, but it's got more of a light for me. It's very apple forward. Yeah. Um, bushels of apples, stewed apple, you know, apple pie and apple crumble and all that kind of stuff. And the rye is just a, just a, just enough to let you know it's there. It's got a little bit of a spice. It's kind of that cinnamon that's in the middle of your mouth, you know, that's kind of letting you know that, that, that it's there. And maybe even the, that tiny bit of raisin that you might get from there. That's, that's that rye kind of talking, mm-hmm. but um, really it's about finding that balance of our mash, but pot distilled, low corn, high malt barley um, distillate and at level three char when, you know, two years was not enough, <clears throat> even it's, I know it's silly to say, but two and a half and three is really where that sweet spot starts to find out, you know, starts to find uh, our whiskey. And then of course, as it gets older and older, it just gets better and better, but um, easy, easy on the palate is a, is a grand theme of our whiskey. I think it's funny. Cause I, I, I like, I do like some of the higher proofs Now I don't go full, uh, full proof monster, you know, like we're, we got to have the 130 proof in order to enjoy it because, you know, that's whatever, but, um, you know, you get, like some of them that are, that are hovering around the 80 and I'll, I, I, I use Basil Hayden's as an example where I think it's, it's such a high rye and it's almost like they're trying to add spice to take away from the 80 proof. That's what it, ta- that's what it feels like to me. It's like a caramel. And then you hit that, you get hit with that rye to like, almost feel like it's, bumped up from 80 proof um, right right you're you're now getting a grain spice as opposed to a heat spice kind of an idea yeah but and it almost feels like not artificial it almost it just feels like it's forced to like we're trying to proof this up from 80 this this has a, a lot of flavor to it to me 
Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't just have that, like, like to me, Basil Haynes, I always go back to Basil Haynes because it always feels like that's where people go to at that 80 proof where it's just a very caramely juice that gets hit with a spice. Like this seems way more, um, complex than like an 80 proof. Obviously it's at 84, but it, it definitely adds more than, uh, just a, a low proof that is tried to be like artificially, spiced up with rye and that's <clears throat> and that's what happens when um you're able to use barley not just as a conversion grain but as a flavor mm. grain again corn great oils you know um i love basil adam harris if you somehow hear this it's i'll talk good things about about basil hayden adam <laughs> i didn't mean that bad <laughs> <laughs> but um uh you know it's a wonderful mouth oil but you're right there's not the, a ton of that flavor on there there is, it's a beautiful whiskey, but, um, where ours is more complex on the flavor molecule from the grain structure versus the flavor from the Oak on an otherwise, uh, lighter canvas of corn. I, I think it's really interesting how you made that point of the malted barley being used as a flavor and not as, you know, whatever, uh, like a binder or, or, or a, uh, yeah, yeah. so in, in, uh, in the distilling world in, in olden days, anyways, um, you had to have malted barley because the enzymes in the in the malted barley are what convert uh, the rye and the and the uh, corn <clears throat> into usable uh, fermentable sugars for the yeast to eat. So it's an mm. absolutely ne- necessary part of the whiskey making process, um, which is why beer, you know, as we know it, is made from 100% malted barley, and mm. the original whiskeys are made from 100% malted barley. But when you come to the United States and you look at where we are uh, on a map, malted barley just doesn't grow great in the United States as a whole, you know, corn is our grain. Um, you know, we're, we're several degrees lower in latitude than Northern Europe. So, um, we still, but we still had to have that malted barley because the, the structure of corn and rye need that extra, those enzymes to break down. Really interesting. It makes <laughs> per- I mean, no, it's, I mean, it really is. It's, I mean, it's, I think that's where I think that's where people are starting to get more into whiskey in general is like like learning more about it. And it's not just, OK, we're going to go, you know, rip shots of Jack Daniels at a bar, you know, when we're 21. And one, start of the, to t- one of the avenues of success that we see for the future of our company is an education and sure. not just educating the consumer about our product, but educating about whiskey and what yeah. whiskey is and how important whiskey is and whiskey's history in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you come into the distillery and you take one of the tours, um, it's, you know, of course we're brand forward, but we really want to make sure that um, all of our guests are understanding um, that we care about the whiskey making process. And first and foremost, we're all whiskey fans. We all loved somebody else's whiskey long before any of us were involved with this business and, and making Boulder Spirits. Sure. I mean, that makes perfect sense. You're, you didn't start out liking your own brand. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but it's, there's, it's, it's, yeah, it's, there's very few legacy uh, uh, distilleries and uh, you know, one day that's, that's what we're all hoping for. You know, I'm, I'm, I can guarantee you, Al would be more than proud to, you know, pass it off to, to one of his boys, you know, as, sure. as years go by. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I, I got to make a couple of trips to Ireland and do a couple of the distilleries out there. And I haven't done, haven't done Colorado or, or like the, uh, the bourbon trail in Kentucky or anything like that. But I, I know when you get out there and you start to hear people talk about it in a passionate way where they care about, like you said, it's obviously brand first because you, you're trying to promote your brand, but having education about just whiskey in general is, is incredible. I mean, 
I know myself and a couple of people I know did like the, the Staven Thief program. And it's, it's not the end all be all, I'm sure. However, like just being able to educate yourself and learn that there is more about it that's really interesting. I think that's what gets people interested in digging in a little bit more and like hearing that there's a lot more about it than just, like I said, ripping shots of Jack or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a generational thing as well. A lot of the younger generation really want to experiment and they're almost want to spend a lot, have less, but spend their money on higher quality. And we've seen that with the beer industry, you know, 12, 13% of the market now. The spirits industry is about, I think, volume wise, it's only about 2.5%, but it's increasing every year. People are becoming a little bit pickier about, pickier about what they taste. They want educated about what they, they, they're buying. And they're prepared to, rather than three Jack Daniels, they'll, they'll have two uh, Boulder bourbons. So it's happening. It's slow. We're at the, we're at the forefront, certainly, of the, the single malt whiskey. There isn't many of us here uh, that are doing a, a single malt, American single malt whiskey. So, yeah, and, and I'm with Ryan. We, we work hard at you know, the education side, informing people, transparency in what we do, how we do it. And I think that bears from the, what I said right earlier. It's very difficult to assess what you're getting from American whiskey because they never really say what their mash bill is. Mm. So you don't know what flavors you're going to get. So you stick to what you know rather than try and experiment and move around. Colorado's great. We used to have, before COVID, we used to have events all the time. We'd be, it'd be 40, 50 distilleries there. And for $50, you'd get in and you'd be able to take until you weren't allowed to taste anymore. <laughs> and you were able to go around and take everybody's yeah. whiskey. Or and, gin. and those events are, are crucial. Yeah, the, and we're talking 40 and 50 distilleries from Colorado. Um, Colorado leads the nation still yeah. in distilleries per capita. So um, our spirits trail is number two only to, the, only to Kentucky's. Um, we are very progressive. We got a lot of craft beer. Um, we've got, I think, 70 some wineries um, and we've wow. got 100 registered licenses to distill, which equals about 70 or so operating distilleries. Um, wow. And so we're, you know, our Colorado, you know, <clears throat> lifestyle really yields to finding new things and, and finding unbeaten paths and uh, and all of us really collectively as a as a as a state of distillers, you know, we're all kind of after that. Most of us are after that, that new path and, and, to, and to make your own way and that kind of stuff. And I think that's kind of mm -hmm. what sets our, our state kind of apart from a lot of the other uh, themes of other states. Sure. There's a, um, there's a, there's a big state, I'm not going to name states, but there's a big state that is making a, a lot of, uh, a lot of whiskey right now. And I just haven't, I haven't got into them yet. And I'm not, it's nothing, uh, nothing against them necessarily. I just haven't, uh, found something from there that I've, uh, really enjoyed. Uh, but what's funny is I've had a couple of conversations with some distilleries out of Colorado and everybody speaks of it the exact same way. They're all very supportive of one another and the idea of making good whiskey that everybody in the state can be proud of that they're their focus on making quality whiskey is very authentic. I think that's really cool about, uh, about what you guys have going on in Colorado and, and also for you guys as a whole, as a brand, because I think if you were to take somebody who, whether they're a new 
bourbon drinker or experienced, and you gave them something that is a higher malted barley content, I think they're going to be able to find the nuances between the two. I think that that is part of what makes like whiskey drinking a lot of fun. Yeah, and we do a lot of uh, in our tours and in any of our tastings, we love to do that sort of comparing and contrasting. So, you know, what's the difference between this mash bill with a bourbon mm. versus a uh, versus a single malt whiskey versus a finished versus a bottled and bond? Mm-hmm. We take through tastings pretty seriously in as much as that compare and contrast. So, you know, we always finish with the PT at the end because that stays in the palate for a bit longer. Sure. Um, but um, we, 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 we're, we're very into that comparing and contrasting different styles. Yeah, the, I can imagine the peated uh, the peated going first might have a impact on the rest of the tasting experience. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, we may do. We say we've done enough. We've done enough R and D at these events that every now and again I would just sneak it out because people you know, they get excited after so many tastes of alcohol and. Sure. I can tell them how to taste in whatever suggested order uh, there is, but every time there's going to be somebody that says, Nope, I want to have that one first. And they do. And then they try to have anything else after it. And I just shake my head. I said, I told you. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm here to help you. But don't worry yeah. about listening. Uh, Alistair, you mentioned the distillery. Are you guys, where are you guys at in terms of, um, you know, protocols right now? Are you opened up for, for tours or anything right now? Well, we shut down, we shut down for our, our um, cocktail menu about a year ago, uh, just okay. when COVID hit. And even though we're allowed to open up 50%, We've made the decision. We we are doing a lot of tours, and the tours are very personal. They're single group tours. We're not adding, you know, two families or two groups. And um, we, you know, for an hour and a half, and we really go back to this education about the whiskies, the comparing and contrasting, what the grains, the flavors of the grains give you. So we're doing a lot of those at the moment. Uh, I've got three tomorrow, for example. Oh. Uh, so we're, we're seeing that that is actually. It's a lot easier, but it's a lot, it's, we get more time with the consumer. We got more time to speak to people rather than people coming in just for a, which is great, like an old fashioned or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know whether we will open the tasting room per se again, because I think we're having a, a great, um, you know, it, we're doing well with not having it open and having these private tours. And really make it a bit more of an education center. And uh, yeah, we're, we're liking that. And, you know, Tony, like that touches exactly what you were saying that, you know, this <clears throat> next wave of, of bourbon enthusiasts and whiskey enthusiasts are much more of that. We want to we want to get past that 101 and we want to peel back the label and learn a little bit about it. And so I think in as crazy as it sounds this is a great transition time for us to really mm-hmm. uh, find our our, our way and and being that space for boulder and boulder county and and you know the front range of of the metro area of of, uh, of denver area <clears throat> um it's it's i i can't like really can't reiterate in that like how important it is for when we uh, have people in our facility to um to really uh, use that that time to educate 
And, you know, maybe it's not about whiskey and, you know, we utilize our facility for events to host local nonprofits or something like that, mm-hmm. or, you know, we utilize our facility to, um, you know, do staff trainings for, for bartenders about selecting single barrels, or we do, you know, anything that so long as it involves our space and, and utilizing it for not just, <clears throat> not only the communal bit, but really for a touch of education. Um, because that's, that's, you know, we all, we all have these at the power, you know, we're all Google machines now we're all at Wikipedia. Um, and so like, there's, there's the hard, it's hard to like kind of fight through fluff or to try to just pick fluff and not have people fight back through it. So why, why bother doing it, you know, and really embrace, uh, uh, where we're at and especially, and you know, like, like we said earlier that the younger consumer is absolutely engaged in that kind of stuff and, Mm -hmm. and they want to care where their dollars go a little bit more. So we got to give them something to care about. I think that's such a great, a great um, perspective on it because you're right. Like people are interested in the uh, details of it, the history, the intricacies, like they want to know about the spirit and where it came from and how it was made. And I think there's more questions about, you know, the process than just like pour it and drink it and like it. And okay, I like it or I don't and move on. Like, I think there is a, a piece of it that people do want to know more about it. And so I think it's a great plan to, to really focus on the education because you're right. People are uh, getting more into it and they ask questions like that. And it's not just, do I like this or do I not like it? They're, they're really getting more into it. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. And this last year, you know, we've all had nothing but more forced time upon us Yeah, to, you know, some people just works twice as much and some people had to find a hobby. And for a lot of people that that hobby became whiskey and that yeah. hobby didn't become tasting whiskey became tasting every whiskey and trying to find out everything, yeah. about every whiskey. And it's really neat to see, you know, it's, it's really cool being uh, uh, somebody that's been in the industry, you know, for, for 10 or 12 years now and to see what it's blossomed into and to see, you know, how many people are into whiskey. It's about- basically- I don't want to take up your entire day because you guys have been incredibly gracious, but I do want to ask, what is your right now? What is your distribution like um, where in terms of, you know, where, where are you guys being sold currently? And also, is there a way for people if they are in an area where you're not um, openly available with your distribution that they could order Boulder spirits from? Oh, that's all Alistair on that one. That's his department. That's a great question. I mean, we're distributed in 15 different states, and mm-hmm. that's growing. Uh, as distributors take us on, uh, we're growing. Um, the difficulty or the, the developing thing within the whole industry is this direct-to-consumer. Uh, I believe Arizona uh, are allowed direct-to-consumers out of distilleries. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the other states are not allowed that. So it goes through the tier system, the, re- uh, the distributor, the retailer. This is all opening up. And, you know, we're in discussions with uh, some other states online. So all our products will be uh, available uh, online, but it will not be fulfilled by ourselves. It will be fulfilled by a third party. And it's not about logistics. uh, It's about legalities. Mm -hmm. So uh, consumers in Arizona will hopefully soon be able to buy our product uh, online and it's fulfilled by a third party. So always going to have the issue with um, of, uh, tra- of uh, shipping, uh, mm. but that's being developed as well. And that's not just us, it's everybody. So yes, we're in 15 states. Yes, I've spoken to Arizona distributors. Mm. So uh, we need to get to that point where we're distributed in Arizona. 
Um, I agree. You know, we're in California. We're in hopefully, um, hopefully Florida within the next few weeks. Uh, Oklahoma, uh, uh, the Northeast, we're hoping to be in very shortly. Nebraska, New Mexico. So we're in. We're 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 growing, but like a lot of um, distilleries, you got to grow depending on what 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 uh, what um, supply you have. So we're being cautious in that way. Yeah, it seems all like of your, all of your Canadian fans. Uh, we we just shipped some stuff to oh. keep as well. <laughs> nice. It's yeah, funny because I'm, I'm just looking at two pallets of uh, products go to Canada uh, <laughs> because Canada are all, is all monopoly, all control, hmm. and um, there's a lot of whiskey enthusiasts that have got together, formed a distribution company, and just saying with hell with it, we're going to bring our own stuff up. So they're bringing, you know, two pallets of our uh, product up. And then as a whiskey group, they're going to start selling it through their own distribution arm. Wow. So they've taken the bull by the horn. They're all full-time in other jobs, but they've formed the distribution company to distribute our whiskey. It's pretty pretty smart, I think, though. But now, uh, not to, not yeah. to, uh, Okay, so if I were to want to get a the peated one in Arizona, if I knew a guy, is there? A, can you order directly from the website or a third party to get that here? No, the oh, yeah. the website to- will already go to another party. Like there's okay. <clears throat> that's already a, an affiliate uh, kind okay. of deal. That's not. It's no. It's okay. It's uh, no. that is the biggest bane of our existence right now. About um, because almost everywhere in the world can you get direct consumer alcohol mm-hmm. and because we still live in the shadows of post prohibition third tier or three tier system laws uh we're all at state by state whims and certain mm-hmm. states can ship to others and it's not reciprocated and it's just it's a mess it's like there's 50 different laws going on between states it's crazy yeah <laughs> very much so no change covid COVID, COVID is forcing this, forcing mm. change. Kentucky recently did uh, uh, pass direct-to-consumer. The House bill, Hawaii yeah. passed direct-to-consumer. Oh. We, are, we are petitioning for the same. So it will happen, uh, but there's a lot of people, or sorry, there are special interest groups that see themselves losing out financially. So um, we're fighting against that. And, and to be honest, even if we can, we're such a small craft distilleries is such a small part of that mm-hmm. supply chain is that I think actually benefit the distributors. If we can promote our products across the country as the wine guys can. And the beer. Yeah. You think if the wine guys can, you can too. And that's what I think. I mean, if they ask me, I'm going to give them that, that, uh, that piece of my mind. So, you know, <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, every, it's funny because everybody I've talked to, you know, when you ask, like, hey, where are you guys at? And everybody does, everybody says Colorado. Everybody seems to go to Colorado. And I don't know if it's just because tourism, people are, you know, going to Denver or going to ski areas or what, but it seems like Colorado is a very popular place for uh, distilleries outside of even like not close to here. And, you know, in our, in our area, they really want to get into Colorado. A lot of <clears throat> a lot of distilleries, a lot of small brands, what we can say, are um, follow the national distribution model. And if you're one of the big big guys and you put millions of dollars behind a product and you're going to launch in the United States, your test markets are going to be L.A., Chicago, New York. 
and mm-hmm. that's just how it goes. <clears throat> and so what a lot of people don't know is that fourth market is actually Denver. Wow. And <clears throat> we get so much attention on our market because we are a very, very, very thirsty state and we spend our dollars on, <clears throat> you know, the, the premium and super premium level of spirits that mm-hmm. uh, we, we always have, we have been this kind of uh, fourth or fifth market that people open up and even for experimental releases and things like that from, from bigger brands. Um, and so as you actually see these smaller brands grow and start to hire sales managers and marketing directors from these bigger companies that are trying to build their own businesses and therefore take over, you know, and, and help smaller brands kind of with their distribution model, you'll find that New York and California and Illinois and Colorado uh, subsequently mm-hmm. are always kind of those top um, four or five to 10 markets. Wow. That makes sense. I get industry it. Inside kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? That's good stuff. Uh, where are you guys at on social media? Where can people find you? Um, uh, no Twitter. So Facebook, we're Instagram heavy. Okay. Um, uh, very Instagram heavy, but at Boulder Spirits is all of our stuff. Um, I'm sure we'll start a TikTok here, you know, in five years. <laughs> um, yeah. we, uh, again, we're, we're a team of very, very, very few uh, operating all of this kind of stuff. So uh, social media is, is, um, incredibly important but we're we're kind of sticking with uh the the facebook and instagram marketplaces nice makes sense well guys i I really appreciate your time i I appreciate the insight this has been extremely helpful and uh and educational man this is really cool i could probably sit here and nerd out with you both all day long and and because it's i have so many questions about the process and the whole just industry as a whole so i I really appreciate the time come and visit when you got china I will. I definitely will. If I get, if I get up to Colorado in the near future, I am coming by there. The invitation is there. Great. Awesome. I appreciate it. You guys take care of yourselves. Thanks so much for your time again. I appreciate it. Cheers. Hey guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks Tony.